we're finally back with another episode. I need to give a very fair warning on this episode. It is uh, tedious, I think is the word that could be used. Some of you might find it boring, repetitive, um, but it's it's a very important topic. And Leighton had asked me to answer a particular question in one of the uh, responses that he made a, a while back. He wanted me to address how are influences determinative, right? Because for Leighton, influences are not determinative causes. They are just, I guess potentially influential, pending your free will um, granting it to be influential. As you'll see, we, we play through this uh, this video. So I'm going to start out by laying out what I think are important details. Then we're going to play through a bunch of clips of Leighton so that you can see those details sort of stick out. And we'll. Um, it's a very important topic because this is where people who hold to free will get hung up. It's It's in this area of what I believe to be the illusion of free will where you are thinking, as Leighton says, that you are choosing from amongst desires rather than understanding that you are choosing according to your greatest desire. That is the key um, point, the, the, the center point in this entire discussion is properly understanding that you are not choosing from amongst desires because if you were, the ranking of those desires from greatest to least would be irrelevant. But rather, in each particular circumstance... All of these determinative factors contribute to ranking those desires according to the circumstance, and you always freely choose to do what you most want, so you are choosing according to your greatest desire. So I just want to make that clear before we get into this very complicated topic. So one of the things I'd like to point out really briefly uh, before we get into the idea of influences is this subtle idea that people are usually so focused on the choice itself, right? We're always looking at the choice and what you could or could not have done. But nobody ever stops to ask, why was I even making that choice in the first place? In other words, why did I find myself in the position of having to make a choice in the first place? Did I choose to be making that choice? Did I choose to be in the position of having to make a choice? And the obvious answer is no, right? You didn't. If you consider the fact, uh, for example, that I chose to eat lunch yesterday, and I'm sure I'll do the same thing tomorrow. But you also have to ask, why was I in the position of choosing whether or not to eat lunch? And as it turns out, I'm a living being that requires nourishment to survive. I got hungry, and I needed to make a choice. Do I eat or not eat? And if I choose to eat, now I've got to choose what do I eat. And we'll get to that, that all the choosing in a minute here. I just want to point out that I did not choose to be in the position of making the choice to eat or not eat. Whether you choose to eat and not starve to death, or you choose not to eat and starve to death, the point is you were placed in a position of having to make that choice in the first place by something that was beyond your control. Right? You did not choose to be created as a being that requires constant nourishment. This is just one example of countless examples of choices that you will end up making, have made, and, and will end up making in your life that are the result of being placed in situations of making choices by things that are outside of your control. You did not, for example, choose to be created in the way that you are. And yet the very nature of your existence results in you being placed in particular situations. And this goes back to demonstrate the point that I've made in past episodes where the nature of choice for us in the finite realm is reactive. It's always reactive. You're always reacting to situations, circumstances, and options that are presented to you by things that are outside of your control. So we'll get to the choices in a minute. I just want to point out again, that is not the same thing as God making choices in, in the eternal realm as an eternal being. People like Leighton Flowers, we're going to get to this towards the end, want to constantly point at God and his free will and his self-determinism and the fact that nothing was outside of him determining him to create, for example, or do anything else, that's all true and fine. But it's a major logical fallacy for you to take that 
eternal nature of existence and try to claim that for yourself as a finite being. And so this first point, I'm just saying that you did not choose to be making these choices, um, demonstrates the fact that you don't get to point to God as justification for your free will claim for yourself. So let's go back to this idea of influences once again then. When you stop and think about it, everybody wants to say, I resisted that influence, therefore it didn't determine my choice, right? It had no determinative effect on me at all. But you're not stopping to realize that it did actually have a, determinate, a determinative effect on you. In an indirect way, it determined that you be in the position of either resisting or not resisting that influence in the first place, right? Because at a bare minimum, you have to recognize that the only reason you ended up in the position of choosing whether or not to resist that influence was because of the influence itself. And so if that influence did not exist and did not exist with reference to you, you would not even be choosing whether or not to resist it in the first place. So right off the bat, if you want to try to say that the influence itself did not determine your choice to do something because you quote unquote resisted the influence, you're forced to recognize that the influence still determined that you be in the position to be choosing whether or not to resist it, right? And we're going to get to that choice to resist it in a minute here, but determinism, notice something, determinism is still in play here, right? It's unavoidable. No matter where you go, you will never be able to escape the reality of determinism. So to pretend that because you resisted an influence, that you can somehow vacuum seal it and move it off to the side as if it had absolutely no determinative effect on you at all is absurd. You also need to be asking in what way did it have or not have an influence, okay? Because there can be more than one way in which an influence can be understood as an influence. And this is Leighton's greatest blunder in this entire discussion. He's so focused on the final result, our choice to give in or not give in to the influence, that he draws a straight line causatively from the influence to our choice, right? Or at least he's assuming that if determinism were true, that it would be a straight line with nothing else involved. And he falsely concludes, therefore, that if determinism were true, we would just be acting on instinct like animals, right? Influence, choice. Influence, choice. But of course, this is missing the entire point that determinists like myself are trying to make. All we're saying is that influences, at a bare minimum, cause you to be placed into a position of making a choice, as I just mentioned. They start the whole process. They cause you to think about and consider and deliberate over the choice. So the influence has, in fact, had a determinative effect on you, period. Now, why you make a final choice at the end of all the thought process and deliberation and weighing of options includes far more determinative factors than just the influence itself. But that's the entire point we're about to get to. I just want to say, once again, whatever influence you want to point at was, at a bare minimum, the causative determinative starting point of the overall decision-making process. So, of course, influences are determinative when you understand them in their proper relationship to what is going on and don't make false assumptions like Leighton does. So now let's actually zoom in on the choice itself. Okay, After all, you resisted the influence, and that was a choice, correct? This is something that Leighton rarely stops to realize. He's, he wants to say that the, the influence didn't determine my choice, but you made a choice to resist the influence. You're not looking at the, the quote-unquote negative or, or opposite side of the coin here. You're not realizing that when you resist an influence, that was part of the choice, right? So the influence is still in play. You chose not to give into that influence. And so all you have to do, again, Leighton hates when I do this, but all you have to do is ask why, the important why question. Why did you resist that influence? Why did you choose not to give in? And remember, this topic is complicated, right? There's lots of things that are involved in decision making 
This topic is going to be different for every person. Every person is a different person for all sorts of reasons, determinative reasons, by the way. We are made up, our history, our past, our past experience, all these sorts of things are going to contribute in various circumstances to our final choice. But people are very short-sighted when it comes to the idea of influences. They think that because they resisted an influence, that determinism wasn't in play. But that's because their attention is on the influence, which they resisted, and they aren't asking the why question as to why they chose to resist that influence. It's almost like people are thinking that because they didn't give in to an influence, that no choice was made at all. But resisting an influence is a choice in and of itself. And so again, there are determinative reasons behind why you choose what you choose, or in this case, why you resist one influence in one situation, but in not another situation. So let's start with something basic. Uh, Leighton Flowers, for example, likes to usually mention the idea of cake, uh, saying that the taste of cake does not determine my choice to eat it. Uh, I have the, the power, quote-unquote, to resist that, it, that uh, desire for the taste of cake, and so this proves I have free will. But let's ask, let's ask a couple simple questions here just to start things off. While I am not thinking about cake, when cake is not even on my mind, can it be said that I have a desire for cake? So stop and think about this seriously, because it's absolutely critical to the point I'm making here. Is the quote-unquote desire for cake this thing that stays with me all at all times, even when I'm not thinking about cake? Or is my desire for cake something that arises when I find myself in various circumstances and situations that involve cake? That's an important question. And so what you'll notice is we often talk about desires in a general sense. We just we will make statements like, I really love cake. But what we're really doing is we're describing the desires that we experience when we are found in those situations of thinking about cake or considering whether or not to eat it, right? And every time Leighton talks about this topic and gives his little cake examples, he seems to be falsely assuming that if determinism were true, then his desire for the taste of cake would always result in him eating the cake. He goes straight from cake and desire for cake to eating or not eating the cake. But he's leaving out the obvious deliberative thought process that we all engage in when we are making what we would consider to be free choices. But I just wanted to point out once again that you might not be able to draw a straight line from cake to you eating the cake, but you can draw a straight line from cake to you thinking about the cake and deliberating over whether or not to eat the cake. So the cake still had an influence on you, a determinative influence. And this is what's funny about influences. It just depends on where you're drawing that connection or pointing at or assigning a reference point. Because Leighton wants to say, well, here's this thing, this influence, and since I didn't eat it, it didn't influence me. And I'm saying, whoa, 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 back up to the point where, once again, you were placed in a position of whether of choosing and thinking about whether or not to eat the cake because the cake was there, and you saw it, and you started thinking about it, and the, and the desires arose, and then you started deliberating, which we're going to get to in a moment, but the point here is the cake still did have a determinative effect on you. So now let's move on to the the thought process and the deliberation and the desires that are in particular circumstances that are behind why you're doing what you're doing and choosing what you're choosing. You'll often hear Calvinists say that we choose according to our greatest desire in, in a particular situation or circumstance. And this point is, is often misrepresented because it's not properly explained as situation specific. Again, desires arise in various situations for various reasons, and they're situation specific. So as a determinist, my point isn't that because you love cake so much that every time cake crosses your path, you're always going to eat it. That's not the point. The point is that even when you're choosing not to eat the cake, 
that can be expressed as a desire to not want to eat it. That can be expressed in a, in a particular circumstance as your greatest desire being to not eat the cake because that desire to not eat the cake is going to have reasons behind it as well. So this is why you can't just generalize these, this idea of, of desires into these categories and say that they're just never changing. Your desires will change based on particular circumstances in combination with you and your past experience, current state of mind, all these uh, determinative factors that we talk about. It's situation specific. It's also important to, important to point out that even when you choose not to do something, you're still doing what you want. Now, now just stop and think about this for a moment. Even when you're choosing not to do something, such as eat the cake, if we're going to call that a free choice, an unforced, uncoerced choice, then by definition, you have to be doing what you want. So even when you choose not to eat the cake, you're still doing what you want. You're doing what you want most. For some reason, and we're about to get to the reasons, for some reason, your desire to not eat the cake was greater than your desire to eat the cake in that circumstance. And in other circumstances, your desire to eat the cake might have been greater than your desire to not eat it. So you'll notice that, logically speaking, you can place the idea of not wanting to do something into the category of a desire to do something by merely stating it differently. So instead of saying, I didn't want to eat the cake, if we're going to put that in a category of a want, a positive desire, a want to do something, you could say, I wanted to not eat the cake. And this becomes important because once you place all your desires into the wanting category, recognize them as desires, then you'll understand that in every situation, your desires are going to be ranked from greatest to least, and you're always choosing according to the greatest desire in that particular circumstance. So Leighton often thinks that he's refuting determinism when he says something like, I chose not to act upon that desire for cake. But he's not realizing that there was also a desire attached to his not wanting to eat the cake, right? Because again, if you're choosing not to eat the cake, and it's a free choice to not eat the cake, nobody's forcing you to not eat the cake, then it can also be said that you wanted to not eat the cake. So there's a desire attached to that as well, and you can't ignore it. So if free choice is choosing what you want, then can't it be said that Leighton Flowers wanted to not eat the cake in that particular circumstance? Can't it be said that Leighton wanted to resist his desire to eat the cake? Again, if it's a free choice, then there has to be a, a desire and a want attached to the re even a resisting a particular um, quote-unquote influence. And that's nothing more than once again saying that Leighton's want or desire to not eat the cake was greater than his want or desire to eat the cake in that particular circumstance. So this is very important when it comes to this idea of influences, right? Just because you choose to resist an influence doesn't mean that you're being forced to resist it, right? You are willingly choosing to resist that influence. And therefore, it can clearly be said that you want to resist that influence, right? So there's even a desire in play there. So even when you're not acting on one desire to eat the cake, you are still acting on a desire, nonetheless, to not eat the cake. And in this case, your desire to resist the influence was greater than your desire to give in to the influence. And we just have to ask the why question once again. This is the short-sightedness that I'm talking about, that so many people have. So, in, just to summarize, in any particular situation, even when you're choosing not to do something, if it's an unforced, uncoerced choice, then you're wanting to not do it. You're freely wanting to not do something. You're still acting upon your greatest desire in that circumstance. So let's circle back to the why question. I ask Leighton, why? 
why did you not want to eat the cake in that particular instance? And there's going to be a determinative answer specific to that situation, which, in, which includes a desire as well. Maybe you didn't want to gain weight. So your desire to not gain weight was greater than your desire to eat the cake in that situation with those circumstances. Maybe you weren't in the mood for it. Maybe you ate too much food before the cake came around and you knew you'd feel sick if you ate it. I've skipped a lot of cake at parties because of that very thing. I ate too much pizza or burgers or hot dogs or whatever, and they asked me if I want the cake. No thanks, because I know that I'm going to feel sick. So as much as I love cake, my desire to not feel sick is greater than my desire for cake in that particular circumstance. But notice, it's not because free will. It's not this mystical, magical, mysterious free will, which has no apparent quote-unquote reason. There are determinative reasons behind why I'm choosing to not eat the cake. Another example might be that your wife had told you that if you ate the cake at the party, she'd be upset with you because she wanted you to lose weight. So in this instance, your desire to keep your wife happy was greater than your desire to eat the cake. So again, there's all sorts of reasons which can be involved, and these reasons are going to be specific to the person and the situations involved, but they are nonetheless determinative. There's always going to be a reason behind why you choose what you choose, or in a particular instance, resisted, quote-unquote, a particular influence. And this is the whole point. Don't be short-sighted. Don't say, I resisted that influence, therefore I have free will, as if that was the only influence in play, as if that was the only desire in play. If you resisted that influence and you did so freely and weren't forced, then your desire to resist the influence was greater than your desire to give in to the influence, and there has to be a determinative reason behind why you wanted to resist the influence. So this exposes the error of so many people and their assumptions that when they resist an influence or they don't act on a particular desire, that they're therefore not acting on any desire at all, and it's just free will. But all choices are made according to the greatest desire in the moment and the circumstance. If a choice is truly an unforced choice, then it must be that you chose according to your greatest desire in that circumstance. Anything less than your greatest desire would be, by definition, a coerced choice, a choice against your will. So if you're going to affirm a truly unforced choice, you must affirm that you chose according to your greatest desire in the moment and the given circumstances. And you can play this hypothetical game. I encourage, I've always encouraged people to think over their past choices or even in the moment as you go forward thinking about particular choices. And you recognize that even when you're not wanting to, even when you're doing something you don't want to do, there's still a reason that you're wanting to do it. So a fun example I always give is that people will say, oh, you know, I don't want to go to work today. I want to sit home and play video games and just relax. But I still went to work today. So that proves I have free will. My greatest desire was to not go to work. And yet I still went to work. So look, I've refuted everything the Calvinists are saying. Determinism's not in play. And I didn't act on my greatest desire, blah, blah, blah. But not so fast, once again. If you chose to go to work, and you weren't forced to go to work, you freely chose to go to work, then you were still acting upon a desire, correct? So your desire to earn money, provide for your family, not lose your job, your desire to go to work was greater than your desire to not go to work, because there are determinative reasons behind those desires. And so this is why you can't think about this lazily. You can't just say, well, because I'm doing something I don't want to do, that there's no want at all to do it. It's just blinding yourself to reality. If it's a truly free choice, then you are doing what you want. You're doing what you most want. And whether you want to admit it or not, even when you're doing what you quote-unquote don't want to do, that's just a, a, a way that we express our dislike for doing something, right? Well, it's not enjoyable, okay? So you don't want to do it because it's not enjoyable or it's hard, right? It's not fun. But you still do it, why? 
there has to be a reason, right? You still went to work because you wanted to earn money to pay for your bills. You still went to work because you didn't want to get fired. So you see how there's still desires? You have to take these other desires into account and recognize that they are being greater than the others. And there's reasons why they're greater, right? And even at the end of the day, I always mockingly say, even if you were to say, oh, but that's, I can prove I have free will. I can stay home. Even if I'm going to get fired, even if I'm going to starve to death, even if I'm going to uh, not be able to pay my rent, I can prove I have free will and I can stay home and play those video games. Well, what's ironic is your desire to stubbornly prove that you have free will is greater than, unfortunately, your desire to not get fired and pay your rent and all those sorts of things, even if that if that ever were to happen, right? That's the great irony in, in, the, in the whole free will debate is to say, well, I can go do that and prove I have free will. You're not proving you have free will. You're just proving that your desire to prove that you have free will is greater than your desire to do what you normally would have done in a particular circumstance. So you can't escape determinism. It's also very important to remember that when we talk about greatest desires or why you choose what you choose, we're asking a question that is specific to the circumstances involved in that choice, right? We're not saying that your greatest desire in one circumstance will always be your greatest desire in all circumstances. What we're saying is that in each individual circumstance, at the end of this logical chain of causes and effects, it's the situation and circumstances in combination with you, which brings about the greatest desire in that particular instance. And once again, we talk about past experience, current state of mind, what mood you're in, right? Are you angry, sad, happy? Are you hungry? All these things in particular circumstances are going to have determinative effects on your final choice. You have to stop looking at the idea of desires as these static, unchangeable things, which are up on some sort of shelf, I guess, in the back of your brain, right? It's, that's not how it works. Remember, did you have a desire for cake five minutes ago when you weren't even thinking about cake? No, the desire wasn't there. So when we talk about desires, we're talking about your desire to choose a particular thing in a particular instance with particular circumstances. And therefore, by definition, your desires very well may be and can be and will be different depending on the situation. Right? All these determinative factors we list off all the time, your situation, your current state of mind, your past experience, what mood you're in, how smart you are, the way you think about things, the list goes on and on and on. Everybody's different. But these are the things which will result in your greatest desire to choose a particular option in particular situations. Now, this brings me to a very common way in which free will advocates will try to explain the idea of free will. Okay, In direct contradiction to everything that I've just laid out, they will often say that you choose from amongst competing desires. In other words, they put the cart before the horse. Reality proves that we choose something because we want to choose it. That's the very definition of a free, uncoerced, unforced choice. You choose it because you want to. Desire and want comes before the choice. The choice is the result of the desire. The choice is based upon and results from the desire, not the other way around. So to say, as free will advocates try to say all the time, not merely that you're choosing what you want, but that you somehow chose what to want that you chose from amongst these general desires that are out there. Put your choice before the desires. Remember, I've, I've talked about desires being situation-specific. They arise in various situations. So you can't put your choice before your desires. You're acting on your desires. And when you try to put your choice before your desires, you're, this is completely illogical. Now, I've already got Leighton to admit, when he responded to one of my episodes, I asked him, can I get Leighton to admit that people do things because they want to? And Leighton said, well, of course. Right? We all say, of course. We choose it because we want to choose it. 
So if you admit that, then how can you possibly come along and attempt to insert another layer of choice before you're wanting to choose it? That somehow you chose to want to choose it. And you remember the infinite regress I've mentioned in past episodes when you ask a free will proponent why they did something. And they say, because I wanted to. When you ask them why they wanted to, they're going to say, because they chose to want to. Right? They actually think that they chose their wanting to choose something. And I just don't know how much more needs to be said to refute this pure, purely illogical view. Right? If you go down that road, then all I have to do is keep asking why. Right? So you chose to want to choose it? Well, then why did you choose that want to choose? Is it because you wanted to? <laughs> so you wanted to choose that you wanted to choose, that you wanted to choose that you chose? You know? And this is the point, is free will just keeps inserting that layer of choice to try to keep free will in control, and it just creates a circular, illogical joke. And that's why Leighton has to say something like, nope, we just stop it there and just say, I chose it because I chose it. And now we're going to transition into responding to some clips of Leighton here, and hopefully with what we've gone over, you'll be able to see the problems sort of stick out along the way. I'll make some brief comments here and there just to sort of keep things in check. So I, there's nothing wrong with saying, why did you choose to do this? Why did you eat the cake? Because it tastes so good. Um, but if you're if you're trying to ask what determined your determination other than you, that is begging the question. So it's begging the question to ask what determined you to choose what you chose. Now, it's interesting. He says, what determined your determination other than you? So I guess Leighton believes that you determined your determination. And a determination is a choice. So he's basically saying you chose what you chose. And this is going to lead into what you're going to see a recurring theme with Leighton. He's backing up choice, right? I'm asking, you chose what you chose, why? Because you wanted to. And then why did you want to? And Leighton has to insert extra choice there. He has to insert an extra layer of choice to keep free will in control. And you can see it stick out subtly here and there with phrases like this. Leighton thinks that you determined your determination, right? You chose your choosing. But that's not reality. Reality is you made a determination. And I can't stand when he tries to paint it as if Determinists are denying that we made a determination. When we make a choice, we are making a determination. No question. What we're saying is, there's a reason you made that determination. That's all we're saying. And Leighton can't have that, so what he has to say is, you're the reason that you made the determination. You determined your own determination. You chose your choice, right? And this is what I've said in past episodes. You don't choose your choices. You just make choices. You make a choice as time unfolds. And you don't transcend your own reality, right? You can't look down at yourself and choose which choice you're going to make. You just make choices as, re as time unfolds, as you live out the moment. And that supports everything I've been putting forth in this episode, that your choices are determined by the, the desires involved at the situation and the time and all the factors involved in that circumstance. So I, I want to take a minute to really get this, hammer this home, okay? So no one is denying that you made a determination. All we're asking is why you made that determination. And when you say something like, I ate the cake because it tasted so good, you're giving the reason behind why you made your de determination. You're giving the reason, period, plain and simple. And if you deny that the reason that you're giving for eating the cake was determinative or causative, then why are you even bringing it up? I've never understood this. Why are you telling us about all the reasons you did what you did if those reasons didn't determine that you did it? Why are you telling us about it? You're, you're basically trying to say that there was both a reason and not a reason at the same time. And that's a contradiction, right? If you're the determiner of your own determinations, as illogical as that saying is, then just say you did it because you did it. Skip all the, you know, stop trying to pretend to acknowledge those reality-based reasons behind why we do things, and then at the end of the day, declare them not the reason you did them. That's illogical. That's a joke. 
skip that part and just say you did it because you did it, right? Because if free will is true, those things don't matter, right? Something is either a cause and a reason, or it's not. It's not a, there's no such thing as a half cause or, or a sort of maybe cause. There's either I did this because, because, right? I ate it because of X, Y, and Z. What is the root word of because? Because, cause, causation, the reason behind why something occurred. And Leighton wants to sit here and say that he can admit I did something because of X, Y, and Z, and yet deny that X, Y, and Z was a determinative cause. And, and that's astounding, right? But it is, as I've said before, precisely what the free will position needs to do to stay afloat in this particular debate. They have to deny blatant reality. It's also important to point out that whenever you say, I did this because of X, Y, and Z, what you're doing is giving the reasons behind your greatest desire in that circumstance. So if you say, I ate the cake because it tastes so good, as Leighton said, then you're putting forth the reason and justification and explanation behind why that was your greatest desire in that circumstance. Doesn't mean it was your only desire, but you're giving the reason behind your greatest desire and why you did what you did. On the flip side, if you chose not to eat the cake and you say something like, I didn't eat the cake because I didn't want to gain weight, then you're, again, giving the reason behind why your greatest desire in that circumstance was to not eat the cake, okay? Doesn't mean you didn't also have reasons for wanting to eat the cake, such as taste, but it does demonstrate and justify why not eating the cake was your greatest desire in that situation. This is also why when we look over and we see somebody doing what they claim to not want to be doing, we don't call them liars because we all recognize that there are more than one desire involved. Right? It's just that our choice is in accordance with our greatest desire in that situation. And that's where the Calvinist is going with it, because they're assuming influences are determinative causes, and we're saying, no, they're just influences. So according to Leighton, we're just assuming that influences are determinative causes. And as I've already demonstrated, they are in fact determinative causes, just not in the way that Leighton is falsely assuming that they would be if determinism were true. Remember when I asked earlier, did you have a desire for the cake before you even encountered the cake or thought about the cake? No, that desire arose because of the cake, because of the cake, right? So the cake did determinatively influence you. It caused you to have a desire. You had the desire because of the cake. The cake caused you to have a desire, right? Now, just because that desire may not have ended up being your greatest desire in the circumstance, and so you didn't end up eating the cake doesn't mean that you get to say the cake didn't influence you or have a causative effect on you. It did. So once again, whatever influence you want to point at was, at a bare minimum, the causative, determinative, whatever word you want to use, starting point of that decision-making process. And once you properly understand what role the influence played in the process, then denying that it was a determinative cause is impossible. And that's where the Calvinist is going with it, because they're assuming influences are determinative causes. And we're saying, no, they're just influences. The determiner is the agent. The agent determines to fulfill his desire by acting in this way. He could have chosen to fulfill a different desire by acting in another way. And again, he's putting the choice before the desire. So, Leighton, did you want, did you desire to choose to act on that desire? <laughs> it's like, again, this infinite regress that you're going to go down because you're trying to put choice in the wrong place. Desire determines choice, not the other way around. And so, once again, we, we just talked about this, but he could have chosen to act in another way. Yes, of course he could have, hypothetically. But why would he have, right? This is where free will gets dangerous in terms of borderline indeterminism, randomness. Why would anybody have acted differently? Nothing forced him to act the way that he did. He was doing what he most wanted in that situation, but why would he have acted differently? And if you can't give an answer to that question, then not only are you missing the entire point of this debate, but you're on your way down the road of indeterminism and randomness where there's really no reason behind why you're doing what you're doing. 
In order for someone to have acted differently in a given situation, something about the situation would have had to have been different. And when you say that I wanted to do this because of X, Y, and Z, you're admitting that your want to do it was your greatest desire because of X, Y, and Z in that situation. And in order for you to have wanted to do something else more than you, the thing you actually did, something about the situation would have had to have been different, resulting in that want to be greater than the other want. Something would have had to have been different to cause you to want or to not want to do it more than you wanted to do it. But he is the responsible agent. The, the taste of cake did not cause me to eat the cake. It's just the reason that I stated for why I chose to eat the cake. Make sense? And no, it doesn't make any sense at all, right? You're putting forth a blatant contradiction. You're saying, I determined to choose A because of B, but B did not determine my choosing A, right? B, B was the reason I did A, but not a determinative reason. Can you explain the difference between a reason and a determinative reason? I mean, I've used the phrase determinative reason, but I use it in terms of emphasis. I think it's a little redundant. If we look up the definition of reason, the first definition says a cause explanation or justification for an action or event. The idea of causation is right there. When you give a reason behind something, you are explaining or justifying why it happened. And yet Leighton wants to say, well, that's why I did that. But it's also not why I did that. My free will is why I did that. And he's just tying himself in knots. And as I mentioned before, you know, this is, the, this is where people are short-sighted and they don't consider things properly. Even when you're doing something that you claim to not want to be doing, there's a reason that you're wanting to do it still, right? There's reasons behind, you know, again, you didn't want to go to work, but you did because you wanted to pay your bills, right? So the going to work is, is a consequence of wanting to pay your bills. And yet you could still say, I didn't want to go to work because that was one of your quote unquote desires or lack of desires, I should say. You wanted to stay home and play video games, but the greatest desire is what you acted on. And that's the definition of a free choice. So again, just stop and realize that there's more than one desire involved in any given choice, right? You zoom in and start asking questions about those desires, why they're present in those situations, and it all begins to make much more sense. So we go back to cake once again. Why did you want to eat the cake? You can list out reasons. It tastes good. I have a craving for it. Maybe it's a new kind of cake you've never tried before. Then you ask yourself, but were there reasons for not wanting to eat the cake, such as not gaining weight? You didn't want to feel sick, on and on. And you notice something. It's not a contradiction to consider that you both want and don't want to do something at the same time. And it's not a contradiction because the reasons behind those wantings are not identical. The reasons behind those wantings are different, okay? So then you just have to realize if we're, if we're going to say you made a truly freak, uncoerced choice, once again, that you're, you're going to say that you did what you most wanted in each situation, anything less than what you most wanted would be, by definition, a coerced choice. And this is why the amount of deliberation involved in a choice is going to reflect how many desires are involved, right? If you have zero reasons for not wanting to do something and only reasons for wanting to do it, then you just do it, right? It's not that complicated. It doesn't matter if there's one reason or a million reasons. If there's zero reasons to not want to do it, then not wanting to do it can't possibly be greater than wanting to do it. So you do it. It's only when we have desires both to do something and not to do something where deliberation takes place. And it is this process of thought and deliberation that we are all engaging in on a constant basis that results in us feeling like we are in some sort of autonomous control over what is going on. And it's what has people like Leighton thinking that they're choosing, quote unquote, choosing from amongst competing desires rather than choosing according to the greatest desire, the desire that wins the competition. 
And you would say, well, then, Leighton, how do you explain when the candy is stolen from the candy store? Well, what I would explain it is that the, the child, a free moral creature, has competing desires. He has a desire not to get caught. He has a desire to eat candy. He has a desire to honor his father and mother. He has a desire to uh, please God and his fear of God in there. His so, real quick, we would fully agree that, that what he's putting forth so far is true. There are competing desires, right? And notice he's listing off the reasons behind those those desires, right? All these desires, competing desires, and probably a thousand others that we probably couldn't even name here, okay? So he's talking about a kid stealing candy. And as we already talked about, if you're going to ask, does the kid want to steal the candy? Yes. And what are the reasons behind that? Well, because candy tastes good. Well, but does the kid also not want to steal candy? And the answer to that is yes, and why? Because of all the reasons that Leighton just mentioned. He doesn't want to get caught, he doesn't want to disappoint his parents or God, so on and so forth. But those are determinative reasons, and all we're pointing out is that in that particular circumstance, whichever desire is greatest, to eat or to steal or not steal the candy, is the desire that is going to be acted upon. All of these competing desires, influences, past character decisions and character development issues, all of these things are factors, right? The free creature decides which of the desires he's going to act to fulfill. In other words, the agent is the determiner, the desire is not the determiner. And this is where the sleight of hand takes place, okay? So Leighton wants to say that yes, there's competing desires, but all I have to ask is which desire wins the competition? If they're competing, there's a competition, there's got to be a winner, right? Which one wins? And Leighton wants to say that our free will chooses the winner. He's placing an extra layer of choice before the idea of desires. Remember, why did you do what you did? Why did you choose what you chose? Because you wanted to. So to say that you chose to want to, that you're choosing the desire to want to, um, is placing that extra layer of choice there, and this is what the free will position has to do to keep free will in control. Because if they don't do this, they admit determinism and lose the debate. So back to the point, even though you might have a greatest desire, the free will side is under the illusion that you can just use your free will to declare a less than greatest desire, the, the quote-unquote winner of the competition, without any reason behind it. And what I'm putting forth is that you're always choosing according to your greatest desire. You're making a single choice, which is determined by a desire. And since, yes, these desires are competing, and there are reasons behind why one is greater than the other, as you go through your deliberation, your thought process, it feels like you're choosing which desire to act on. But really, you're acting on your greatest desire. You're doing what you most want, and that by definition is, is, is as free of a choice as you can have, that you're doing what you most want. But here's the logical problem when you go down this road. All I have to do is ask if our will is choosing the winner, right? Despite all the reasons behind why one might be greater than the other, if the will, the free will just comes along and says, oh, I'll go with you instead of you in terms of desires, if you're going to insert an extra layer of, of choice, then all I have to do is insert the extra why question right? Why did you choose that desire over the others? There has to be a reason. And this is where that infinite regress occurs once again. If you answered my first why question, why did you want to do that? Why did you want to choose that? By saying that you chose to want to do it, I just have to ask why you made that choice. Why did you choose to want to do it? And then if that choice was a free choice, then you did it because you wanted to. And then when I ask why you wanted to choose to want to do it, you're going to insert another layer of choice. You're going to say that you chose amongst competing desires to choose amongst competing desires to choose amongst competing desires. You're just going to keep backing up that infinite regress so that you can try to keep free will in control. But this goes against all of reality as we've been pointing out. And if free choice is by definition doing what you want, then there must be a desire attached to any choice that you make. 
So I am not being a little five-year-old when I ask Leighton the why question anytime he tries to introduce an extra step of choice. Anytime you're going to mention a choice, there's going to be a desire attached to that choice. So if you chose what to want, then you also wanted to choose to want. And my infinite regress claim is proven. And then Leighton goes on along the same lines here. On Calvinism, the desire is the determiner. The in that's correct. In reality, and if you, you want to call it Calvinism, that's fine. But in reality, you chose it because you wanted to, right? Your desire determines your choice. Pretty simple. And yet Leighton can't have that because that would refute free will. Influential factor is actually a determinative factor on Calvinism. That's why, that's why you'll hear Sproul and others argue. Uh, people, people always make choices based upon their greatest desire. What's he saying? In the circumstances. People always act in according to what they're determined to desire. By the divine decree. Is basically. Now, in... Well, and then he's going to throw the divine decree in here. Sure, ultimately, Leighton always loves to go right up, right up top to that. That's fine. Ultimately, by God's decree. That's fine. But as I've been saying out repeatedly, it is you... And all those factors he listed in combination with the situation and the, the factors in the situation that is resulting in a greatest desire in the moment, right? And the, the, again, if you're acting freely, you're doing what you most want. And we're saying, no, the individual agent is the determiner of which one of the desires he acts to fulfill. And he could have refrained from fulfilling that desire to eat the candy and steal. He could have refrained from doing that, which is what makes him a culpable agent. And the idea of could have done otherwise is introduced here, and we've covered in past episodes how you can't be talking about ultimate could have done otherwise, right? You can't falsify the foreknowledge of God, for example. And I would point out the idea, the reality of cause and effect. When you look back at particular circumstances, all things being equal, the, you did what you did for specific reasons, and in order for you to have ultimately done something else, something about the situation would have been different. Something about the situation, something about you, you're in a different mood, thinking a different thought. Right? It, something about the situation had to have been different for you to have done other than what you did. That's in the ultimate sense. But we can always talk about hypotheticals. right? So he's talking about here refraining from doing. He, well, they could have refrained from doing it. Well, in, in reality and hypothetically, there was nothing forcing them to do what they did. So yeah, they could have refrained from, from doing that if something about the situation had caused them to want to refrain from doing it. Sure. right? They could have refrained from doing it. Um, so just don't confuse ultimate with hypothetical there. But back to the point, I have to ask the why question again, right? I have to be that little five-year-old and ask why, why, why. Why would you have refrained from doing it, right? So sure, they could have refrained from doing whatever it is they did, but why would they have? And the whole point here is the answer to that question is that he would only have refrained from doing it is if his desire was to refrain from doing it, right? If that was his greatest desire. If, if his desire to refrain from doing it and the reasons behind that were greater than his desire to, to do it, that's the only answer you can have to why it would have been, why he would have refrained from doing it, right? And just remember that each of those desires are the way that they are and have the order that they have and the priority of, of greatest to least in this competition of desires, quote-unquote, because of determinative factors, not because your free will just chooses a winner. Unlike a dog, um, you know, who acts on instinct, a, a human being is able to choose from amongst his desires and is, is able to refrain from fulfilling an evil desire um, and, and therefore he's held culpable because he's a free moral agent. Um, right, and, and just once again, why, would, why do people refrain from acting on certain desires? The answer is because they desire to refrain, right? The desire to refrain from doing something is greater than the desire to do it, right? And this is where I, I, I have a hard time understanding when Leighton presents this idea of the desires as if they're out out there somewhere, 
right? That, that, that they're not part of you um, at the at your very core determining what you're doing. He wants to move, he wants to have your core be your free will, and then you're surrounded by desires, and you're sort of looking around and choosing. This is the illusion that free will is, is, is operating under. When I talk about desires, I'm talking about the reason behind why you did what you did. You're looking at the choice, and you're saying you wanted to do it, or you didn't want to do it, and there's reasons behind those particular things. So every time Leighton mentions the idea of, quote-unquote, choosing to act on a desire. I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with the phrase that we act according to our desires. We act on our desires. But when Leighton tries to back up the idea of choice into the acting on desires and saying that that is a choice, that's where I have the problem because it goes against all of, all of reality and, and logic when you stop and think about it. You don't choose to want to choose. You just choose because you want. And that's all I'm getting at in all of this. Leighton, again, is seeming to forget that even when you refrain from doing something, even when you resist that quote-unquote influence, you, you are doing it because you want to. You're, you want to not give in to the influence, right? You, there's a desire attached to it, and there's reasons for why that desire was greater in that particular situation. Well, I appeal to the mystery of the function of the free will. There's no, none of us can see the internal functions of the way in which a free will acts. We also don't know all the, all the influential factors. So... You don't need to see how a free will, quote-unquote, functions to know that it's functioning for reasons, right? As a determinist, I don't have to appeal to mystery, right? I start at the beginning, and I go through to the end. It's A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, all the way down the line. The only mystery, quote-unquote, that might be involved, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, is merely the lack of information that I might have behind why something occurs. Sometimes I do stuff and I don't know why, but not knowing the reason is not the same thing as denying that a reason was there. So once again, it's interesting that Leighton will appeal to the complexity of human choice and talk about how we don't know how many factors are involved in people's pasts and whatnot, when I thought that it was as simple as our free will just choosing which desire to act on, right? So why do all these complicated factors matter if they don't have any determinative relationship to what is going on? Know all the influential factors, a person's psyche, a person's background, how their parents' decisions affected them, and all those other things. Again, influential factors not causative. That's why they're not victims. So the idea of influential factors with Leighton, once again, why do, influ why do influential factors matter if they're not determinative? Never understood this, right? Maybe, maybe Leighton can explain. Leighton wants to mention these factors because they're a blatant part of reality, and we all know them to be true. But at the end of the day, if those factors are not the determinative reason behind why you did what you did, why are you even bringing them up? Um, that's why we shouldn't say people are victims because they have a, a certain sin, skin color or because they came from a certain background or economical background or whatever. They still have a choice, even though those may be negative influences upon the choices they make. They are still responsible. Why? Because they're not victims. What is a victim? A victim who's being acted upon by someone in such a way that they can't do otherwise, which is exactly what we believe. It may be wrong, but we believe the claims and the consistent outplay of the Calvinistic system, they ultimately make reprobates into victims. And covered that a, a trillion times in past episodes. Again, confusing ultimate ability to do otherwise with hypothetical ability to do otherwise. Um, any Christian, any Christian, including Leighton, is stuck with ability to do otherwise in the ultimate sense to be impossible. So he wants to talk about reprobates or victims because God creates them destined for hell. Any Christian, I just did an episode on how God determined it, quote unquote, is true of any Christian view. And you'll have to go check that out. No time for it here. They're being acted upon by sources outside of themselves that they have no control over, causing them to believe and behave in ways that they cannot control. And that is more of a victimhood mentality than a true responsible person who is able to uh, make decisions despite their influential uh, 
influences of their past and their culture and their economics and all those kinds of things. They're still responsible creatures. They're still able to respond in their given circumstances. And this is once again the illusion that, that or I should say, the, the misconception that Leighton is under when he's saying that, well, since free will is true, people are able to act against their past experience and so on and so forth. And once again, we as determinists also believe that people are quote-unquote able to make decisions despite their past. Nobody's saying that a desire for cake means you always eat cake every time it crosses your path. What we're saying is that since determinism is true and situations are not identical, people do different things in different situations. If the situation was identical, I have no problem saying you would always make the same choice. But situations aren't identical, right? You're not going to make the same decision you know, regardless of the situation. Each situation is determinative of your particular decision. So when Leighton talks about somebody acting in spite of their past, I just ask, once again, the five-year-old why question, why did they act in spite of their past, in some instances and not in others? Why was it that in some instances their greatest desire was to act in accordance with their past and what they're accustomed to, and in other instances they act in spite of those things, right? Why are they acting one way in one situation and another way in another situation? It's not because of the, the illusion of free will. It's because when we examine each individual situation to answer the why question, we find that there are determinative reasons in those situations behind why people do what they do. If he's going to reply to one thing, that needs to be it. Because uh, that, that's his major error, is that he assumes influential factors are determinative. And we've already covered why influences are determinative. You guys should see it by now. So he's ultimately got Satan, for example, tempting him through the serpent as a not an influential factor, but a determinative factor. And so Eve could literally say, Satan made me do it. And this is Leighton conflating uh, something causing your choice with something forcing you to do it, right? This, this quote-unquote Satan made me do it, or the taste of cake made me eat it, it's not the point, right? Because you're leaving out the thought process and the, the deliberation that occurs. You have to admit Satan at least caused you to consider doing it, right? The cake being there caused you to think about it, right? So it once again, it did have a, a determinative causative effect on you. It's just not jumping straight to your choice like you think it is. You need to take all things into account, such as your thought process and deliberation. That's where you arrive at a final choice for, again, determinative reasons, which may or may not include Satan, just like the cake you ate at a bare minimum caused you to start thinking about the cake, desiring the cake, and you had a thought process and deliberation over that as well. All right. So this is once again why it's important to recognize that things can be influences in more than one way. The cake did influence you because it caused you to think about it. That's where the influence of the cake is. And then your final choice to eat that cake may have been influenced by your desire to eat the cake. But it's only when you take the full cause and effect picture chain into account, when you get away from this really basic misconception on Leighton's part, that, well, an influence just, you draw a straight line from the influence to your choice. It's not quite that simple. Right? So going back to the idea of Satan tempting Eve, uh, determinists aren't drawing a straight line from Satan tempting Eve to Eve giving in to that temptation. There's a connection. We are drawing, you know, a, I guess you could say a crooked line, a, a chain of causes and effects line that follows a determinative path from Satan tempting Eve to Eve deliberating over the temptation to resist or give in to that temptation to then making a final choice. We're simply recognizing that everything happens along the way for specific reasons. And, and we as determinists, again, we're not leaving out the important things like deliberation and thought process which is going to be guided by all those factors we always talk about, past experience, current state of mind, what mood you're in, right? current dispositions toward the particular people involved. You can't possibly deny that these things do not uh, um, determine or affect your choices. 
uh, along the way in your thought process, right? All these things guide your thought process and deliberation of various circumstances, and they give weight to the different desires that are involved in those circumstances. They give weight to them, and you're going to freely choose to act on your greatest desire. So back to the idea, I have to hammer at home, of Satan being a quote-unquote influence. You have to admit, did Satan cause Eve to be placed into a position of making a choice? Of course he did, right? And it wasn't in, you know, at least that part wasn't in Eve's quote-unquote control, right? It wasn't in Eve's quote-unquote control to be placed in the position of resisting or not resisting Satan's influence. What was in Eve's control, quote-unquote, then? It's the choice itself. It was the result of the, del- the deliberation and thought process, which is nonetheless occurring for reasons, determinative reasons, and, and this is why the Satan made me do an excuse doesn't work, right? That would only work if Satan was forcing her to do it, which is an, a common misrepresentation of determinism, which is, I'm not saying Leighton's doing that here, but he's just assuming that if determinism was true, you could say Satan made me do it, when that's not the case. You could only say Satan made me do it if he forced you to do it. If you skip the thought process and deliberation and freely acting on your greatest desire part, right, which is critical to decision making, if you skip that part, then you could say Satan made me do it. But of course, we don't skip that part when we take it all into account. So I think we're going to bring this episode to a close uh, to keep it under an hour. I was going to jump into a bunch of clips where Leighton always has to compare his free will to God's free will, as if you could ever do such a thing. But I think that's better saved for other episodes. Uh, we hint- we did covered that um, in our episode, Abandoning Our Free Will Intuitions, if you want to go check that out. I also want to point out that I didn't really mention, you know, God's role in any of, of the things going on in this episode, because we're addressing, in this episode, storyline level outplay, deterministic ABC123 outplay of reality. And if you just take this episode and understand it in light of everything else we've covered in this podcast so far, you should see that this all makes perfect sense, right? God is in control of all things, and he causes his reality, his creation, to function in a coherent manner. Everything happens for a reason. Everything has a purpose. Even your choices and the reasons behind those choices. God is in control of it all. He's working all things after the counsel of his will. And so, hope this episode has been beneficial along these lines. Uh, you can find Consistent Calvinism Podcast and all your favorite podcasting apps. You can subscribe to Consistent Calvinism on YouTube. And you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism, at C Calvinism for fun discussions and updates there as well. And never forget to stay consistent, my friends. 